It's great to have you back and listening to The Divine Lantern as we continue our series on the Divine Liturgy. With the blessing of His Eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. I'm Jonathan from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth and this episode will be joined by Father Jean, who will be enlightening us on the Holy Anaphora and the Lord's Prayer within the Liturgy. We'll also celebrate St. Mary of Egypt, learn about a monastery in our Patriarchate, and answer one of your questions. So stick around and enjoy the episode. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, welcome to the next episode introducing the Divine Liturgy presented by the Divine Lantern Podcast. Having just confessed the right faith and the right doctrine in the Creed, our collective statement of faith, which is an essential prerequisite for the celebration of this Eucharistic mystery, we now enter the next revelatory experience of the Divine Liturgy. In this podcast, I will briefly introduce the Holy Anaphora up until the Lord's Prayer. This section of the Divine Liturgy is known as the Eucharistic Prayer or Canon. It is more commonly known as the Anaphora, which means the lifting up or the elevation. At this time, the gifts of bread and wine, which have been offered on the altar, receive divine sanctification by the Holy Spirit, who comes to change them into the very body and blood of Christ. The general form of the Anaphora is that of the Old Testament Passover ritual, now fulfilled and perfected in the person and work of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Offerings and sacrifices were a key part of the practice of the relationship with God and His people in the Old Testament, yet they came in a number of forms. There was offerings, as in the book of Genesis, where Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. There was burnt offerings or peace offerings, also in Genesis, where it is said that Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. There were sacrifices. It says Jacob offered a sacrifices there in the hill country, and invited his relatives to a meal. All of these offerings are now fulfilled in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is, as we say, our Paschal Lamb who has been sacrificed. St. Paul in the New Testament already relates to this fulfilled form of offerings and sacrifices, where he said, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. If we look at the first letter to the Corinthians, and also the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew and Luke, we can find a sequence already established for this worship. St. Paul says in the first letter to Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We also find this very similar sequence in both Mark, 
Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Therefore, all liturgical celebrations of the Eucharist from the time of the Gospel and onwards included the breaking of bread followed by a proclamation that it was the body of the risen Lord. There was a blessing over the cup which was declared to be the blood of the covenant poured out for all. These distinctive Eucharistic formulas became fixed and in this way the Christian community is worshipped. The structure of worship is called anaphora, which is attributed to St. John Chrysostom, which was practiced in Antioch before he transported it to Constantinople and adapted it into the liturgy in the 4th century. So for the faithful, it is within the liturgy that they two together are given the opportunity to experience Christ in the same way that the apostles did some 2,000 years ago, and that they become something more than what they are as individual members, namely the one body of Christ. This holy anaphora can be described in six different sections. The first one is thanksgiving, because we offer thanks to God for all His saving acts in the world. We pray, You brought us from non-being into being, and when we had fallen, You raised us up again. And let nothing undone until You brought us up to heaven and bestowed on us Your kingdom which is to come. For all these things we give thanks to You and Your only begotten Son and Your Holy Spirit for all the benefits known and unknown. The second is the institution narrative which is based on the words that Jesus Christ uttered on the night he gave himself up when he said, Take, eat, this is my body, and drink from me all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, ending with the command to do this in remembrance of me. The third section is the anamnesis, which is also known as remembrance. This is a powerful action, which is not simply implying bringing to mind those events mentioned, but makes them a reality present for us. We pray, remembering then this commandment of the Saviour and all that has been done for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand and the second and glorious coming again. The fourth section is the Epiclesis, which is also known as the invocation of the Holy Spirit, where we ask the Father to send down the Holy Spirit upon these gifts here presented. St. Cyril very beautifully says that whatever the Holy Spirit has touched is sanctified and changed. The fifth section is intercessions. These, as we will discuss shortly, are importantly offered for an occasion to commemorate those who have rightly lived before us and those needing our prayers. And lastly is the doxology. The anaphora ends with a prayer that together, with one voice and one heart, we may worship and praise your all-holy name. Before we delve into the sacred words of the anaphora, it is inspiring to note that the mode of prayer changes at this point in the divine liturgy. Before the anaphora, we traditionally have words addressed to God with a response, but in the holy anaphora, it changes to a dialogue where the priest and the people address each other. The priest begins by exclaiming, let us lift up our hearts, and the people responds, We lift them up to the Lord. The priest says, Let us give thanks to the Lord, and the people respond, It is meet and right. Another example is when the priest is exclaiming the heavenly song of the angels and says that they are singing the triumphal hymn, they are shouting, they are proclaiming and saying, 
the congregation joins in and completes the sentence saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Participation in this dialogue reveals that the people are not simply there to observe, but rather to actively offer, not as an audience, but rather as the royal spiritual priesthood. Having therefore set ourselves as people seated at the Lord's mystical table, let us look at some of the key dialogue exchanges in the Anaphora. We begin with a call to arms by the Archangel Michael, who summoning all the angels at the fall of Lucifer said, Let us stand the right. And then the priest continues, Let us stand with fear, let us attend, that we may offer the holy oblation in peace. Saint Anastasius of Sinai comments saying, We must stand with reverence and fear at the awesome moment of the holy Anaphora. For with whatever disposition of soul and whatever thoughts each person has at the time as he stands before God, he is raised up to the Lord with that same disposition. This rallying reminds us that the reality of the Eucharist is that whatever takes place on earth is also in heaven and whatever is in heaven is united with those things that are on the earth. The people gladly respond, a mercy of peace, a sacrifice of praise. Thank you so much for such an enlightening talk. Make sure you tune in next week for part two from Father Jean. And now to a series of readings from the Philokalia. Together we'll explore the profound wisdom and guidance found in the writings of the Holy Neptic Fathers. So take a deep breath, clear your mind, and let's begin. Why was man created? In order that by apprehending God's creatures, he might contemplate and glorify him who created them for man's sake. The intellect responsive to God's love is an invisible blessing given by God to those whose life by its virtue commends itself to him. St. Anthony the Great If you fail to receive grace, it is because of your lack of faith and your negligence. If you find it again, it is because of your faith and your diligence. For faith and diligence always conduce to progress, while their opposites do the reverse. St. Gregory of Sinai Stones form the foundation of a house, but the foundation of sanctity and its roof is the holy and venerable name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A foolish captain can easily wreck his ship during a storm, dismissing the sailors, throwing the sails and oars into the sea, and going to sleep himself. But the soul can be sent to the bottom even more swiftly by the demons, if it neglects watchfulness and does not call upon the name of Jesus Christ when they begin their provocations. Saint Hezekiah the Priest On April 2, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the Venerable Titus the Wonderworker and the Virgin Mary Theodora of Palestine. On this same day, the fifth Sunday of the Great Lent, it is ordained that we make remembrance of our godly mother, Mary of Egypt. Spirit rose up, flesh melted away erewhile, hide, O earth, the worn bones of Mary's body. 
Once, during the honourable fast, the priest monk Zosimus withdrew into the wilderness. He caught sight of a withered woman named Mary. Her hair was white as snow. Mary then told Zosimus that she was born in Egypt and at the age of 12 began to live a life of debauchery in Alexandria for 17 years. One day she went to Jerusalem to enter the church to venerate the Honourable Cross. However, some invisible force restrained her. In great fear she gazed upon the icon of the Theotokos in the vestibule and prayed that she be allowed to enter the church while confessing her sinfulness. She was then permitted to enter the church. Having venerated the cross, she again entered the vestibule and before the icon gave thanks to the Mother of God. At that very moment, she heard a voice saying, If you cross the Jordan, you will find glorious rest. Mary left for the wilderness and remained there for 47 years in repentance. She bade Zosimus to come back in one year with the Holy Communion, which he did. The following year, on Holy Thursday, April 1, 522, Zosimus discovered Mary's lifeless body and buried her. Thus, the Lord glorifies penitent sinners. The Church exalts and exemplifies Mary to the faithful in great Lent as an incentive for repentance that brings entry into the heavenly kingdom. Through her intercessions, O Christ God, have mercy upon us. Amen. What is the purpose of Godparents? Those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Alleluia. A godparent, also known as a sponsor, is someone who serves as a witness and guarantor for the faith of the one being baptized, and are responsible to edify them in the rules of Christian life, which has existed since the first century of the Christian era. Since the introduction of infant baptism, the godparents have assumed the important obligation, together with the parents, of making sure that the infant is brought up within the Orthodox Church and in the life of Christ. That's why the baptismal witness is called the parent in God or Godparent as they have a task of steering the child along the narrow path and bringing them up according to the law of God, which is the greatest of all things in life. Godparents or sponsors exist for both child and adult baptisms. For a child baptism, it is the duty of the godparent to speak on behalf of the child by giving the prescribed denunciations of Satan and affirmations of accepting Christ, and who finally recites the creed, signifying the personal belief of the child to baptism. Not only that, but the godparent also has the duty to make sure that the newly baptized is guided towards the teachings and traditions of the church, 
making sure the child remains a frequent communicant within the church. It is also the role of the godparent to remain actively supporting the child within the life of church. To serve as a godparent is both a special honour and a cross as these responsibilities last a lifetime. Every godparent will be accountable to God as to whether he or she has fulfilled their duties. The godparents must know their faith or at least be in the process of learning their faith and be committed to a life in Christ. If the sponsor has a poor understanding of the church, it is difficult to lead a newly baptised Christian towards Christ. The early church placed a strong emphasis on educating the faithful and those seeking to enter the Christian faith. As Christianity spread in the pagan world, the need to educate people prior to baptism became essential. The systematic instruction that served as a prerequisite for baptism was, and is still known as catechism. This taught the fundamentals of the Christian faith and moral life. The importance of these teachings as well as the teachings themselves can be seen in St. Cyril of Jerusalem's fourth pre-baptismal catechesis. The candidate had to be introduced by one of the faithful, the future godparent, and examined by the doctors, the bishops in charge of the catechumens to ensure that they had a clear spiritual motive for entering the church. Baptism was not something that was hurried, except in extreme cases. Not only did the candidate need to understand Christ and the church's teaching, but they also needed to live by them. On being a godparent, Saint Theophan the Recluse expresses that there is no holier act, saying every godparent will be accountable to God as to whether or not he or she has fulfilled their duties. Prospective godparents must know their faith, or at least be in the process of learning their faith and be committed to a life in Christ. With the enormous responsibility that comes with the position, it's even more essential that the person be chosen carefully. The church does not allow anyone who is not orthodox to become a godparent, because how can someone who is in himself not a faithful, active orthodox Christian bear witness to living a life immersed in the orthodox faith? As a result, the godparent must be a person of high moral character who can inspire the newly baptised to fulfil their baptismal vows. For the first three consecutive Sundays after baptism, the godparent accompanies the parents with the newly baptised as they approach the Holy Chalice to receive the Holy Mysteries. This requires the godparents to be a regular communicator themselves. The godparent must also actively participate in the church life, giving to the church through almsgiving, keeping the fasts and otherwise leading a life of piety and purity. This role and responsibility of the godparent can be summed up in the divine commandment but is read from the Holy Gospel at the service of baptism. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of age. Amen. The following segment, Monasteries of Our Patriarchate, will take you on a journey through the profound Orthodox monasteries specific to the Antioch and all the East. We hope you gain a greater insight and appreciation into the geography, history, contributions, miraculous recounts and spiritual guidance these revered sites and their inhabitants provide. The Dormition of the Theotokos, Hamatura Monastery Arguably, one of the most well-known and revered monasteries in Lebanon, let alone the Middle East, is the monastery of the Dormition of the Theotokos in Hamatura, which is a part of the Sea of Mount Lebanon. 
Its importance lies in it being the home of several spiritually significant and influential persons such as the Hiram monk Isaac Atallah, a disciple of Saint Paisios and the late Archmandrite Pantelemon, who contributed much to the spiritual life and liturgical music of Lebanon. Importantly, it was the place in which Saint Jacob of Hamatura laboured and received his crown of martyrdom, a saint who was forgotten for hundreds of years but re-emerged in the 21st century appearing to people and performing several miracles and directing the faithful to look to Christ as the source of life. The Hamatura Monastery is located atop a mountain cliffside overlooking the region of Kuspa in Lebanon and is 30 minutes away from the city of Tripoli. It can be distinguished from the rocky crags by its bright red-tiled roofs and the many crosses that adorn its precinct. It is surrounded by nature and fertile lands. The ascent to the mountain is difficult and is only accessible on foot, with a pathway being carved from the mountainside. Visitors are greeted by a signpost which instructs pilgrims to enter the grounds modestly dressed while informing them that they are about to enter the Theotokos' area. The monastery of the Dormition in Hamatura has once been termed an Athos outside of Athos, in reference to the holy mountain in Greece. Its strict monastic rule, revived in recent times and promulgated by the late Archmandrite Pantelemon, carries an ancient monastic tradition of 1,600 years. As mentioned previously, this monastic tradition, which is the very heart of the Hamatura monastery, was largely influenced by the Archmandrite, as well as the Hieromonk Isaac Atallah and Saint Paisios himself. Currently, 25 monks reside at Hamatura monastery. Their life is that of a traditional Cohenbiotic monastery, which is a monastic practice in which monks live communally, not alone as hermits do. The monastic life consists of a cycle of work, prayer and church services, as do all monasteries. It is open to pilgrims who visit the monastery to obtain its blessing, especially on the feast of the Dormition of the Theotokos, the monastery's feast day that is, as well as the feast of Saint Jacob of Hamatura. The early history of the monastery can be traced to the 5th century in the cradle of the early Christian era. The monastery has survived despite harsh persecution during the Mamluk and Ottoman periods of the Arab dynasty. It faced plundering and persecution of its monks under the Mamluks, who would seize the monastery's goods and as a result of this, the daughter monastery of St. George, located above the Dormition Monastery, was closed in the past. In historical times, the Hamatura monastery was poorer than others, surviving on arms and the raising of silkworms. The monks possessed a mill by the stream from which they ground grain for those residing around the area. Before the monastery of Balamand was established, Hamatura monastery was seen as the cultural and religious centre of the surrounding region. It contained several books and manuscripts copied by individuals close with prominent Antiochian hierarchs and includes texts detailing donations made to the monastery, priestly vestments, books, and mulberry trees, amongst others. The monastery also served as a residence for metropolitans. The monastery has been recently restored to 10% of its original size. Since it has been subject to many disasters, including a number of earthquakes, one in 1600 and one in 1917, were particularly destructive. Archmandrite Pantelemon Farah 
initially arrived at the monastery in 1994 and worked conscientiously to revive the monastic life there. Under his restorations, several icons were discovered, and in 2008, relics of martyrs were discovered, belonging to Saint Jacob of Hamatura and his four martyred companions, among whom was a young child. These relics were exuding a beautiful fragrance described by one of the brethren as a rose-like fragrance and was the result of the Lord's providence. Saint Jacob of Hamatura was a hieromonk of the late 13th century who re-established the monastic life in the region. His renewal of the Christian monastic life enraged the Mamluks who attempted to convert him away from the Christian faith. He, along with a few others, endured torments under their command for almost a year and after his martyrdom, his body was burned to prevent proper honour from being given to his relics. However, pious Christians, either through secretly taking them or paying a ransom for them, obtained his relics, thus revealing their knowledge of the sanctity of the body that has suffered for Christ. However, St. Jacob's memory was eventually forgotten over the course of a few hundred years. Due to a weakening of the Christian spiritual life and literacy, under the difficult arm of Ottoman Sultanates. In recent times, St. Jacob has appeared to various people, curing them of their ailments. Recent descriptions of the saint have also been discovered in manuscripts in the Balaman Monastery. People who have seen the saint would come to Hamatura Monastery asking to see a certain Father Jacob. But as there were no monks called Jacob at the time, it was soon discovered that these pilgrims were indeed mentioning the very St. Jacob himself. The first vigil for St. Jacob was composed by the elder of Hamatura in 2002, whose feast day lies on the 13th of October. Several hundred pilgrims attend this service annually. The relics of St. Jacob and his companions currently rests at the Church of St. Michael the Archangel within the monastery's grounds. The monastery contains a miraculous icon of the Theotokos, contained within the newly renovated church adorned with new frescoes depicting the lives of the saints as well as the Hamatura martyrs. During the Ottoman persecution, at a time of great famine and a small number of monks, the brethren decided to place the icon at the top of the smaller, more accessible monastery. However, each time they placed it there, they would return, finding the icon in its original position at Hamatura. Villagers from across the mountainside would report a fire coming from the mountain, from the icon itself, and the monks knew that it was the will of the Theotokos that her icon remain at Hamatura. From this, it is clear that the monastery of the Dormition is a holy place of monasticism in the Middle East, serving as a beacon of orthodox spiritual life in Lebanon. Despite its difficulties and the years of persecution, it remains standing, guarded by the protection of the Theotokos and Saint Jacob of Hamatura. Thank you again for tuning in to another installment of the Divine Lantern. Remember, next week we'll have part two from Father Jean before the culmination of our Divine Liturgy series. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website at www.antiochian.org.au. And if you'd like your question answered throughout the podcast, please shoot it through to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Have a blessed day, and we hope to catch you next week.